soreness for him isn't a good measure of the appropriate dose for making better gains than he's ever made before. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Muscle Minds with Scott Stevenson. I'm Scott McNally. All of our programming is brought to you by truenutrition.com. You can use our code THINK for some high-quality third-party tested supplements. You can get health supplements, performance supplements, protein powders, and a lot more. Definitely um, drop me a DM if you had any questions about flavors and stuff. Uh, I am back here today with the one and only, the thirst trap himself, Scott Stevenson. What's up, man? How you doing? I'm good. I need to get, um, I found some, I found a shirt that was like thirst trap. Yeah. It was like a, like a, like a drinking fountain or something like that, you know? Yeah. I want to, I want to get that shirt. And the one I also want to get was one that, um, uh, I, I've seen a couple of times now with the, uh, um, only fa- fans only on it. And it's just a shirt with a bunch of fans like Anastasia, right? Like Derek's fiance. She has, she had one of those she wore. Okay. And it's like a bunch of fans, like all it's like fans only. It's just yeah. fans. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. I like that. that was great. I like yeah. that. And I could totally see you wearing that too. Yeah. Um, I got to tell you, Scott, we have gotten, I used this, this number on drugs and stuff. Uh, one of our listeners looked it up and they did determine that it was a made up number, though. I'm going to repeat it. I'm going to use it again. We have gotten a gazillion questions about injectable L-carnitine, since uh-huh. last we spoke. In fact, I feel like a couple people were even outraged uh, that we brought up the fact that uh, that L-carnitine can interfere with our ability to use thyroid hormone. I think the reason there was like a little bit of outrage was because people felt like, uh, you know what, I never have seen this happen in my life, which I've never seen it happen either. And I think we weren't like trying to warn people that this could happen to you. But more mm-hmm. so just talking about this interesting little side note, which is really good to be aware of. That said, um, it's it like I said, it, it's brought up question. People just want to know more about L-carnitine and what it does. And I thought that we could we could maybe talk a little bit more about it than just telling people that it'll ruin your thyroid if you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I, I, we just like it was kind of slung into that topic we weren't planning on talking about. It. I hadn't looked into it and then we just we just started rambling on it and I mm-hmm. thought that I had covered in that 30 minute stint the basic mechanism that people are trying to employ. So um I think what happened when I was at least reading the YouTube comments, you those other you may have gotten some other ones since then is that um they read the uh, uh, the title, uh, the title. I want to call it clickbait, but like you know, the attention grabber. Yeah, um, and they're like, ah, oh, like don't take it at face value. It means don't like pay attention to the title necessarily. Um, don't worry about it. And I do cover, I believe, in that little you know um, explanation that I gave, what people are trying to and what does actually happen is that L-carnitine does increase fat utilization at rest and during exercise once you've loaded by increasing, presumably increasing the amount of L-carnitine acyltransferase, which is rate limiting for bringing fatty acids into the mitochondria where they get oxidized. So you get better at using fat. That happens. It's been demonstrated. Um, and you know, can look, and, and, I, and I have to say before I go on, yeah. I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to go, I'm going to go into the, into the fucking woods on this shit. Big time. Okay. Okay. I just have some other things I'm doing first. And I promise some people have asked me about it. 
So I don't have all these, all the data. I don't have like the full spiel. You don't and have charts for me to pull up. No, not okay. yet, but okay. I will. I'll, I'll have, I'll, I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I think we talked about this before is uh, I'm going to, we'll talk about it here and I'll probably put a post up on Instagram because people were asking me about it there. And then I'm going to write an article for John Meadows site. Um, okay. Which we'll have. So people can go there if they want to read the references and all that kind of stuff. The, the, the That'd real, be cool. The full write up. Yeah. So, it's important to note it does it. The reason why people are talking about it is because it does help. It does work. There's just that interesting caveat. And I heard from at least one person um, that thought, huh, what you're talking about makes sense to me because when I'm dieting down, I seem to be able to tolerate and need a fairly high thyroid dose, huh. like a hundred micrograms, which is high, which is pretty high. Um, as they diet down and he's like, could that be because I also use uh, injectable L-carnitine as I diet down? And I'm like, it very well could be that makes perfect sense because those two are antagonizing one another in the way we talked about. So that would make perfect sense. So it wasn't to say L-carnitine doesn't do what it's been demonstrated to do in shifting fat uh, utilization towards fat use, Yeah, that it can't help get you leaner. It's that, for instance, let's say for that person or someone in a similar situation, they're using injectable L-carnitine and it works for a while and then they start getting deeper in their prep and it doesn't seem to work as well. That's one thing to know. Yeah. It's sort of like, yeah. it's sort of like, like imagine you didn't know that, you know, testosterone aromatizes and you're using a bunch of testosterone and I'm holding all this water. I don't and know I what's don't going know why. on. You know? Yeah. I don't know why. So that's it's not what I'm saying like the testosterone isn't anabolic. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying that it aromatizes. Not that I'm saying L carnitine doesn't ha- cause, uh, invoke a, a shift in fatty acid use. Yeah. I'm saying that it also has this other effect, which is, you know, knowledge is power type of thing. Yeah. That can be known to you. So what I have found, and actually Victoria is is uh, got a she's put in a request for an article through interlibrary loan for me, for an article in German. Um, it's kind of eigentlich so I just said, I speak German. I'm going to, I can do, I've done podcasts in German and actually I've been working on something else. That's that what's, that's, that's what takes precedence over this topic for a German podcast. But once I get that, that article, from what I've seen in secondhand sources that have quoted it or pulled from that information, is and, and another source as well, is you can have a pretty, we're talking like a greater than 50% drop in basal metabolic rate from mm. someone who's hyperthyroid who gets treated in the like the one, two, four grams a day range orally. So if we assume about 20% about bioavailability from that oral, we're talking about the range of where people would be using injectable thyroid or injectable L-carnitine. Hmm. So it is used to treat this thyroid storm. It is used to reduce uh, symptoms of thyroid, and it can indeed bring an elevated metabolism from someone who has Graves' disease, who has hyperthyroidism, can bring that metabolic rate down. It has that effect, hmm. and a strong one, not just a little itty bitty bit, like a big, a big effect, like literally all the symptoms of uh, tachycardia, elevated heart rate, high metabolic rate, inability to sleep, insomnia, blah, blah, blah. 
it can remedy those in large part with normal over-the-counter doses. Wow, yeah. So it's powerful. And I, and I want to get this other paper and dig into that and see, you know, see what the deal is there, and put all the pieces together. The interesting thing is, is that at least from and the Victorian way, I went a little bit back and forth on this. This is why I want to you know, get the whole picture so I can, I can try get all the pieces. So I can paint the full picture is it doesn't, you can have some of the symptom. So symptoms change without seeing changes in things like TSH that are as noticeable as you would expect. Hmm. And why that is, I've been only been able to speculate. So here's the thing. Um, I have to look into and see what see what's going on with the sensing mechanism in in the brain, um, in the hip, in the in the uh, in the pituitary gland, and then in the thyroid gland. Because what's going on there in terms of sensing thyroid and T four levels may be different than what's going on at the tissue level where thyroid is acting on a target tissue and yeah. impairing metabolic rate there. Because yeah. it seems like it's bringing symptoms down and affecting metabolic rate without having nearly if the effect on the thyroid axis, yeah. the hormonal axis between the pituitary, the thyroid, the target tissues. So what that means, in fancy, that's the fancy schmancy way of saying that there could be a, an impact on metabolic rate that doesn't show up in blood work if you're looking at TSH or even T4 or T3. Yeah. necessarily and that's what i want to try to like dig in and figure out because um the thyroid you know thyroid metabolism is beautifully complex you know with binding proteins and antibody possibilities form formation of antibodies reverse thyroid and like it's it's a it's a complex little booger are so you uh, so some of the stuff i had been looking at about l-carnitine is um, positive effects on the brain. So outside of just fat loss, they're seeing positive effects. And I haven't really done a ton of research on that, but I just was curious while we were talking about it, if you were aware of anything in that, in that area. Like we were saying before, I literally didn't open. I intentionally okay. was not opening some stuff that Victoria sent me. And one of the things was, um, on um, it was a it was a blend of uh, kind of a supplement blend of nutrients, let's call them, that seem to have a positive impact on the brain fog from from COVID. And so, if you have a situation where, let's say, and this is now I'm just totally armchairing this. I don't yeah. know because I haven't read that paper yet. But but you've got a situation where you've got something like a spike protein associated with the virus that that makes its way into cells by disrupting cell membranes. Um, and you've got something like L-carnitine, which let's say you've got a, um, a situation where those spike proteins are just running rampant. Let's call them wrecking balls. Well, you've got a, you've got a plasma membrane on the outside of the cell, but all the organelles inside your cells also have membranes, including and especially the mitochondria. So, if the mitochondrial membranes get screwed up, all the business of energy production in the mitochondria happens between the outer and the inner membranes. Hmm. Um, that's where basically to kind of summarize it, it's sort of like taking the potential energy of water flowing down a river and 
running it through a dam and collecting that energy, um, the potential under the flowing water in a turbine and then making, making electricity out of it or taking the energy of wind, you know, in a wind turbine, making energy out of it. So that's what you do at the, in the end with the food that you break down, you end up moving protons around and you create a potential energy gradient there that any energy gradient only, uh, only is valuable if you have a membrane where you can control the flow of those protons in the same way that you control the flow of water hmm. to a dam. And if that membrane screwed up, because let's say something like COVID is, has thrown things out of whack and you can somehow, this would be an indirect mechanism, just totally winging this shit out top of my head, you know, but if you've got a situation where you can give a supplement or, or some, some combination of supplements that help with bioenergetics and allow the cell to better uh, handle nutrients, you could sort of in an indirect way patch up and fix or at least sort of remedy in the way that aspirin might remedy um, you know, a broken leg. It doesn't fix the broken leg, but it helps you with the pain. You might be able to help with energy metabolism in the brain that's disrupted by fucked up membranes because hmm. that's part of what COVID does is has an impact on membranes. And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't seen the ev- direct evidence on the, on the mitochondria membrane per se, but I just know enough that the spike protein, that's kind of how, what it does. One of its, you know, its negative effects is just sort of like a wrecking ball. Uh, and you, that's a way you could possibly sort of remedy things. So anything that's going to help, um, with efficiency or with basically in this case, sort of a, a metabolic flexibility effect on being able to use um, but more, more fuels possibly in the mm. mitochondria. That would be, that would be what, what you'd want to have in L-carnitine. I don't know if it was L-carnitine in this, in this mix of things that was having the effect that you may have, you know, that you're thinking and you've noticed, but it seems like you've got an effect from L-carnitine. Yeah. So it's been, that's what's interesting. It's been it's been noticeable, and mm-hmm. I do have to say that what I I need to do is I need to use it without using a pre workout as well, because oh. I I had gone back to using okay. a half a dose of half a scoop of pre workout, okay, and uh-huh. and taking L and then I started adding L carnitine in, and I had already been using the pre workout, but then I started adding the L carnitine in, and I started noticing like, wow, my whole rest of the day I'm feeling like so much more with it and I feel so much more clear and focused because I I have dealt with brain fog since I had gotten sick in February and it's way way better now but like right after I had gotten sick when I first started recovering I couldn't even do basic math like it it hurt my Mm. brain it gave me anxiety like I felt Mm -hmm. completely powerless over just doing like real simple tasks mentally uh, and, and over time, of course, that continued to what I had to do was I would I would sitting on the couch because I really still was sick and I'd have my laptop with me and I'd like work for five minutes and then I'd be like, OK, I'm done. And I just close the laptop and like just sit there. I can't do anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and over time, I, I was able to extend those periods of time. But the L-carnitine, man, it like it just seemed to like rip right through that. That said, I also had a dose of caffeine. Which which I've also right. done like afternoon coffees and it's not been like afternoon quad shot yeah. espressos. And, it, right. and that didn't I, I was never like, holy shit, I feel so much better. But to really know for sure, I need to use it without the the pre-workout attached. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, I, I do. Actually, it's interesting. Um, some people, some people get tired from caffeine a little bit. Yeah. It's not everyone. And I, I've heard that be, and I've never, I don't know, you know, how this has been, if, if it's at all been directly tested, but I've heard that attributed to um, potentially an effect of caffeine on blood sugar. So, mm. yeah, yeah. Some people, somebody goes down, goes low and your brain, you know, likes, likes glucose. This is the complex part about this, ah. you know, what's actually going on here. But if you, if there's, let's say a, a glucose sparing effect of the L-carnitine such that you don't have, a, you don't have, you have plenty of glucose available for your brain that may be helpful and that the L-carnitine yeah. shifts you to, to fat more so elsewhere. You've got plenty of the glucose. You don't have a, that effect on blood glucose. It'd be interesting to get a glucometer out and just see, you know, with and without the L-carnitine, maybe you're, you're already kind of loaded. So it's hard to know, you know, you've already got the L-carnitine in place, but, but you're getting an acute effect of the L-carnitine. Yes. It yes. sounds like, so that's, that's, what's kind of interesting. You know you what know? though? I am taking a break from it. Cause now that I came to Canada, I didn't want to bring mm. like additional injectable vials and stuff with me, even right. though yeah, I, I believe you can bring L-carnitine across the border. I just said yeah. to myself, you know what? I'm not going to mess with it. So I left that at home. Yeah. So I am yeah. taking a break from it. When I get back, um, I recently started using a glucometer again too. So I've got one on hand and I could okay. do some, uh, I, I'd love to talk to you about what you think a good experiment would be to run with that. And I could try it out. Yeah. Yeah. It's you know, pretty simple, you know, yeah. just, with caffeine, L and L with or without L-carnitine, the same caffeine, the same, you know, situation, and then just you know make blood glucose measurements, um, you know, over the over the length of where you feel there's an effect. So it's over three or four or five hours, then you don't got to do measurements every ten minutes, but every half an hour, yeah, you know, see yeah. see if there's a gl a glucose difference. You know, when you run that trial, like you know, three times each, something like that. Yeah, it would be worth it. Yeah. It'd be worth it versus seeing what it looks like not using it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, this is cool. You know, this is, um, it's funny, you know, too, because creatine, like one of the things that people figured out about creatine, which has so many parallels with a carnitine, um, doesn't have any effect on thyroid that I'm aware of, Okay, but, but it, you know, being found in meat and shifting energy metabolism, blah, blah, blah. Um, creatine has been shown to be helpful for, for neurons and, I think I mean, they've tested it in like brain injury and stroke. It has, it's involved with energetics of neurons. So, okay. uh, you know, it, it doesn't like when you kind of line up the, the columns of things that carnitine and creatine do, Yeah, there wouldn't be surprised if there's check boxes next to, you know, positive effect on neuronal activity or neuronal fatigue or what have you, whatever's going on with you and your, your cognitive centers. I could see that. So, Yeah. Hey, but uh, more coming. I prom I'm sorry that I haven't gotten to it. I, I told some people to get to it closer earlier, but just some other stuff has come up. So Scott's a busy man researching stuff about stuff. <laughs> right. Um, I, I did want to mention, as I've mentioned before, that I did start a, um, what do you call it? Like an affiliate with uh, Amino Asylum, amino-asylum.com. And if you use the code think you'll get 20% off of their L-carnitine, which that's, Ooh. that's what I've been using. So I'm happy to hook that up and get 20% off myself personally. <laughs> Buy four, get one free basically. Basically. Kind of. Yeah. If you use like the code, that, yeah. I like the way that's a good salesmanship there. Buy five, get one free. Yeah. Hey, I, I wanted nice. to mention too, anybody who's watching live, um, I see laser threw a question in, so we will oh, get to fun. that. Um, and if anybody else has any questions, we don't always take questions on muscle minds because 
uh, Scott will have he's he is like a pit bull when it comes to knowledge. And if you if you open up a study, he is not going to let it go. The jaws are just going to clamp down. And an hour and 15 minutes later, I say, all right, guys, that's all we had time for. And then we close the show. So the pit bull's jaws are free. I, I do wanted I, I wanted to ask the question though that you got sent Scott uh, before we we got to anything else. Um, and actually, okay. I, can, I can do a little screen cap of it here. Let's see, and I can throw it on the screen as well. Here we go. This is actually just the text message you sent me. Um, so you got this, this over? A, oh, go ahead. This is on my board. So this is on my board. It got asked. I've already an, long answered it, but it's a good question. It brings up a really cool topic. So, what's your uh, this board you speak of, Scott? Oh, it's actually just today. <laughs> I had. I feel so bad. I had this guy write a really nice message. I've purchased your book, and he writes out this really long. He just copy and paste it, but he writes this really nice. I hate to bother you. I'm sure you get these all the time, and I just I just sent him back like. I got a discussion board. I answer those questions. I've been, I've answered this one many times. You know, it's just, here's the bottom line. If you buy my fortitude training ebook, check the purchase email. Cause it describes how you can get free access lifetime. As long as I'm around, as long as the board's still open, ask me any questions on fortitude training, ask me kind of questions on anything. I answer all the questions that I get there. People just don't want, um, they don't want to take the time to go and, you know, register on the board and, and hmm. ask, ask the questions. Apparently, um, here's the thing: uh, <clears throat> a lot of people might not even get this about message boards nowadays, uh, newer generation. But you don't generally. I don't have to. If I find a message board with information that I want, I generally don't have to ask the question because it has probably my question's probably been asked uh, before. That's the nice thing yeah. about a message board is that right. you start reading through, you find the information you wanted, but then you also find the answers to a thousand more questions that you didn't even know you had yet. And I'll be mm. completely transparent and say, that is a huge way that I've educated myself over the years. You know, like oh, yeah. Scott, we're at a point where with the podcast, people can throw questions at us and we can just bounce right back with answers uh, in a lot of cases. And a big part of my education for doing that has been through communicating with others on message boards, reading the thoughts of people mm -hmm. like yourself, John Meadows, uh, Dante Trudell for years and years. So just want to throw that out there. It's totally there. That's, that's the thing is like literally it's so cool to get a question that I've never seen before. Cause it's so rare. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not like, Oh, look at me. It's just like been, been around since the beginning of the internet doing this. And the questions are out there. Ask your question, literally just type your question in Google and you'll see it's been answered again and again and again and again um, everywhere. So my board doesn't show up on Google so much, but I've answered this question many times. Okay. Or not this one, not this one, but the other yes. one I got asked today in email. Um, and I, this guy was really polite, really nice. And I'm just like, it's the answers there on the board. So I, I gave him a gift and like saying like, ha, go look there. You'll find much more than what you just asked about. But all right. So this question is, so he's specifically, uh, I'm, I just want to preface this with saying he's talking about fortitude training. Um, but we can apply this to a lot of forms of training. So I think that that'd be one of the things we should probably clear up first, but uh, he says, part. anyway, I got brave and I am using uh, just turbo tier two for the whole blast. And that's where I want a little bit of explanation. He says, uh, I just can't get sore anymore for some reason. 
I'm moving up with the loading and the MRs, so I am progressing. Only time I got sore was when I came back from a hospital stay or if I do a bunch of junk volume. I have been training for well over 20 years. I added the well in, I guess. I've been training for over 20 years and never got sore unless using a bunch of volume. Uh, do you still get sore? And uh, you have me on 10 years of training. Is it, did he add that last part in there too, or is that you? He says, uh, this is interesting when I did DC. No, okay, that's it as that. well. When I did mm -hmm. DC many, many years ago, uh, the same thing happened, but I had my best growth spurt too. So first of all, I, I want to make clear for anybody who isn't familiar with uh, Fortitude training, he says that he is just uh, turbo tier two for the whole blast. What does that mean? So there's two versions of Fortitude training and there's three tiers. So tiers, tier one, three volume tiers. So tier one is the lowest volume. Tier two is intermediate. Tier three is the highest volume. And the two programs, the the um, uh, the regular, the turbo and the re regular, the basic, I call it, is uh, differ only in frequency. So basically the, the part of the pun, the turbo is the volume on the basic, but just spread out so that you train actually everything four times a week for people wow. who really want to go go high but but you've just you're not going and trying to do like you know eight sets each day yeah um there's two four days in the, four days a week training in the training program days one and two are the same in both versions and as opposed to in the basic version doing like an upper one day three and a lower on day four or it could be the other way around um you just take the volume and distribute it over those two days so those both of those days become full body workouts so okay. you're doing four full body workouts a week but it's not very much and tier two is the intermediate volume um so there's not a lot of recovery time in there but recovery time needs to be balanced with the stimulus so he's not trying to do like you know 15 sets of squats on friday and come back and do 15 sets of squats on on uh on Saturday. In fact, there's, you know, depending on the volume tier, he may only do like for quads, which you might consider anywhere between like five sets and, you know, 10 sets, 12 sets. Um, I have to go and look specifically for, I have to think it all through to give you a, a more exact number. So uh, he's doing the, the, uh, the turbo which is very high frequency. So you're training everything basically four times a week with the exception of arms, which are getting in, trained indirectly. Uh, so, the, so the interesting thing here, just kind of get to this, why I think this is a cool question. One, I've, as I've said many, many times, answered this question, I'm, I get, I'm sore all the time. I get sore really easily. I stay sore as well. That's, that's something I've noticed. And he is growing his best now that he has for a while. And there's some other circumstances that are involved here, but he's sort of coming off a layoff, but he's making great gains and he's not getting sore. And he made some of his best gains ever doing DC training, which I think it does have even less weekly volume than what he's currently doing with fortitude training. He's making great gains. Yeah. So he's, so what this is, this goes back to the hormesis curve. 
You do a little bit of a stimulus, you'll get a little bit of adaptation. I'm going to do it the uh, so people can kind of see. As it, so you little stimulus, here's your axes. Little stimulus, little adaptation. Little more stimulus, little more adaptation. Somewhere you've got like optimal amount of stimulus, optimal amount of adaptation. And then you keep on trying to drive, train more and more and more. You don't adapt as well because what's happening is you're not recovering from the stimulus. Yeah. Completely. You're getting some recovery. And eventually your recovery and your stimulus will be balanced. So you're getting no adaptation. You're going nowhere. You're spinning your wheels. And you do that for too long or try to push even harder, you end up with a negative adaptation. And that's what will be defined as overtraining, where you're actually losing strength in the gym. So he has uh, apparently, he's, he's at the point where he's, his stimulus is so small that he's not even getting any perceived uh, muscle soreness. Yeah, he's having obviously something's going on because he's making gains, but he's not. He doesn't have a tremendous inflammatory response to the injury and the disruption that he's causing. It's there. Something's happening, obviously, but he's not getting this massive inflammatory response because he's not noticing any real muscle soreness. Um, maybe he would feel different if he waited like a week and like you know stretched out. He like okay, maybe there's a little bit of difference, but it's it's very very minimal. So. He's in this place where he is getting, he's getting stimulus that he's recovering from completely or really, really well. And what that means is his adaptation is great. It, he, he probably has been training. I'm going to just keep drawing the curve. If he, if he is at the place like this where he's got so much stimulus that his adaptation is not optimal, that's where you're going to be sore. The, further you, the uh, more sets you do, the more sore you're going to be. Yeah, And the less that you do, the less sore until there's some optimal place. Well, the optimal place for him is a place where he doesn't have, or it seems like from these two data points, DC training then and fortitude training now in comparison to his previous experiences when his gains weren't as good, he's making more, uh, more optimal or better, better gains now when he doesn't have any sense of soreness. Soreness for him isn't a good measure of the appropriate dose for making better gains than he's ever made before or for him what's closer to an optimal rate of gains. So that's something that John Meadows mentioned many times when he's really done really, really well, he wouldn't get sore. You know, he could train like a banshee and not get sore. I can get sore from literally one set. I'll feel it. If it's a, like all out, you know, crazy gun to your head type of set. Yeah. So, that's the thing that I've learned over the years is that um, this is why I even set up with fortitude training, the idea of having this intensive cruise where you've got, you know, time off completely at the end of it is to harness um, some of the, the gains that are put in, in place or put in motion from the training that you've done by allowing yourself to actually recover. And I may have mentioned here on the podcast, there's an interesting study that was done with some high frequency blood flow restriction training, a Norwegian study. And they, they waited, they did like two periods of training, like a week in between the first and the second. And they followed muscle size and they waited, I think, 20 days after the second period of training. And it was just like twice a day, crazy training enough to really like, um, blast the, these guys must've been just sore as shit. And then they gave them like three weeks. And they actually saw growth that only manifested three weeks afterwards. No kidding. 20 days. Yeah, 20 days afterwards. Okay. It took a lot of time off. 
then that's not typically how people would train in the first place. And that's not typically how long you would take time off. Right. But it's an interesting phenomenon to show, you know what, you know, and I've tried to employ this even a little more regularly when I'm dealing with what the next question might be, the one that got posted on Facebook just now, um, is waiting until like, okay, you know, I don't want to take so much time off, but you know, what if I'm really sore? What if I just wait two days, wait four days? Yeah. You know, we normally wouldn't do that. And when I do, when I come back in, I'm ripper and ready to go. I notice that like performance gets sprung forward. Everything works really well. I don't get to train as much as I like to, if I were to train like that all the time. Right. You know, and there's probably a law of diminishing returns that, that can come about where you're not, you're not getting the cardiovascular conditioning. If you're only, you know, training, you know, twice a week, you're, right. you know, you're doing like an upper lower, the only training, like, you know, eventually at some point you're going to have a deconditioning effect that might come into play. Yeah. Cause you're not, training you know like with legs or deadlifts or like high high muscle mass engaging exercises enough I, to i noticed that shape. yeah i yeah. i noticed that myself this past year before i'd gotten sick and i was really pushing the push pull legs and i had started hitting every you know tra- taking one day off per week training everything twice training six days a week oh, wow and that's, that's where I, well that's where i started but as i progressed that turned into five that turned into four and then it turned mm-hmm. into three. And basically mm-hmm. when I got to three, I was at my absolute strongest, but I did start to notice that I, I got gassed a little bit more easily after a while. Right. Like, you know, you, you can only like, you know, what's the best training, you know, what should I do for my training? How should I change my training? It all relates to, you know, what you were doing before that. You know, we, we've talked about that a lot. And I, I feel right. like, you know, that worked for a period, but I, it's something you, I wouldn't be able to do forever and still be my best, you know? And that, what you just described there, this is like, this is what, you know, the strength coaches figured out, you know, decades ago with periodization, like with yeah. standard linear periodization, like, you know, hypertrophy, strength and power phases, you know, the Matviev linear periodization model, like you start off, you get yourself into shape, you know, in the case, they called it hypertrophy probably because these guys are coming off of a layoff. So they're growing just because of the novelty of the stimulus. But then you, you develop a certain, you know, a certain baseline fitness that then carries over. And but eventually that will fade, you know, so that's when you would go back to a higher volume, different type of approach yeah. um, so that you're you're basically you're letting the you're, you're fiddling with the stimulus and the recovery. So that, you know, you, you, like you've gotten yourself to a point where let's say you start off the first month, like with six times a week, the way you're doing this and you, know, you make gains there. And eventually the fatigue, so to speak, the recovery is match only matching what the stimulus is. And eventually if you kept that up for another two or three or four weeks, you'd start to backslide. So you drop the volume down and now your recovery sources have been balanced at six times a week and you drop it to five times a week. So now your recovery outpaces the stimulus a little bit and you start making gains again. Yes, exactly. And eventually, you know, then, then you start to, the recovery starts to, you know, fail to catch up. So you drop down to four times a week and then your recovery like supersedes. So you're kind of like, you're sort of pacing yourself. It's like, you know, running next to the rabbit of recovery. So you, you know, you get ahead and get the rabbit to speed up a little bit and then on recovery and then you slow back, slow down and the rabbit sprints ahead and you make gains. Yeah, because your exactly. recovery you know, outpaces your your stimulus. That's the whole. That's the name of the game. 
Name of the games game. Right and I, I do feel like all this does tie in really nice to Doug's question that uh, he just posted here in the live feed. He says, um, referring to a recent podcast about JM and his auto regulatory approach, how to distinguish between when to just knuckle up and push through versus when to back off, take a rest day. Mm. I'll be curious to hear how you explain this because this is a. Uh, I feel like for me, my first inclination is to be like, you just know, you just have to figure right. it out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, it, I was, what, what I was going to say, you, you, you kind of, um, you've answered it in part. It, it's going to depend on the person hmm. and the degree to which they develop that, that, that internal auto regulatory sense. And it can take a long time to do that. Um, the tough part about that is that, uh, most people don't have any way of, of getting any feedback as to whether their sense of when to pull back um, is correct or not, whether they've actually made the right decision until it's, you know, days or weeks down the road, you know, that they, that they do, for instance, like, you know, take a day off. And the example I gave recently, I think this was on, on, um, Cuba, Cuba's CLN. I'm sure you say his last name. Cuba. I did his podcast. I think it just came out today. Um, and DC training was a great example of this. So you're doing Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you know, upper, lower, upper, et cetera. And Dante would say like, you know, if you feel like run down and just take a whole day off and just, so you, if you skip that whole day, that has a, tre that tremendously increases your rest days. So let's say you go Monday, Wednesday, and then you go Friday and you come back and you come back on that Monday and you didn't, you decide not to train because you're just not, you know, in the swing of it yet. And you said you just shift everything to Wednesday. Now you went from, in this case, two days off um, to four days off. You know, or if you skip Friday, then you went, you go from Friday to Monday. Then you have Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday to Monday. You've just gone from having just two days off to five days off. That's huge. It's gigantic. And you would notice that, like, Every time you did it, like, holy shit, just that one, I just took one day off of training, boom, that's instantaneous feedback. And you're like, okay, now I know what I'm tuning into here. I didn't really necessarily want to take that day off. I was kind of iffy about it. You know, I wasn't sure yeah. what thing to do. But when you come back in and you're an animal and you're able to extend in DC training, extend your blast by three or four weeks, you know, because you just took that one day out, that's a great learning experience. So part of figuring this out is is getting those learning experiences with some feedback and dc training was a great way to learn that i think i was sort of i got had advantage of learning a lot of that with dc training what i do with clients is i use a perceived recovery scale um that's actually been uh um correlated with with performance measures and that's okay. on my website um it's uh in the be your own bodybuilding coach book um, this is when you would point to it in the back, but you don't have it there, so you can't do it. Uh. <laughs> you know? So, and that's just a zero to ten Likert scale, verbally anchored scale that people make. They will they make a measure. They basically assess themselves. Um, ideally, you could do it diff different uh, times of the day. It's in a very general sense, but you you do it before you've got the looming challenge of the gym in your head, where you're starting to flip the switch into I'm an indomitable force and gravity is my bitch. That's not the time to make your perceived recovery scale measurement because being <laughs> honest with yourself 
about how you really feel is not what you want to do when you're getting like, it's like, it's like getting under a big squat, you don't go and say, wow, this is going to be really heavy. It's like, yeah, no, yeah. that's not what you Am want. Am I going to be of. able to do this? Yeah. Yeah. So being, getting used to tuning in to those things, the perceived recovery scale gives someone a way to sort of verbally anchor it. So like, yeah. it's kind of like saying, how are you doing today? And it's like, I don't know. Okay. It's like, would you, would you say that you're, you're feeling um, not very good at all? Kind of poor, but not, you know, not great. Average, pretty good. Um, rip, run, ready to go. You're an indomitable force of nature. Like, where would you put yourself on that? <laughs> and you're like, okay, you know, I'm not an indom- I'm feeling pretty good. I'm not like, I don't feel like, you know, a Marvel Comics hero yet, you know? Um, so when you have that and you get used to like judging with that verbal scale, then you develop some experience and you can do that outside of the training window when the mindset has to be shifted. So that's one one way to do it. The other you know, the objective measurements are what's going on with your logbook, mm-hmm. you know. And you can't you can too. Like there's all sorts of things that happen in the gym as well. Um, one thing is like when you go in and you pick up that first forty five pound plate, does it feel like a tiddlywink or does it feel like oh gotta get gotta throw my body in to get this up on the bar? Yeah. That tells you something. So every if everything's you know you have those days where like well, this everything feels light like those are like those I got are little, great days. You know you're about to have an awesome day. Days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, it's not a bad thing also to use the PRS, see recovery scale, and put that in your logbook on that day. You know? Okay, okay. Even you can even do like RPE measurements. You know, you know, as you're warming up, just as a you know. Just as a so so you can go back and retrospectively look at that and say okay so what's you know what's going on here I'm not quite sure what happened my PRS seemed great in the morning you know but um, oh okay I'm training at eleven o'clock ah. two of these days and then when I go in at one and I sleep in on the weekend everything seems lighter I'm doing better so training day is part of what's going on here maybe I need to reschedule my training so that I'm putting the big lifts on the weekends when I have more sleep. Yeah. And this in fortitude training, this is one thing you can do is you have the loading sets, the heavy go-to exercises are on day one and two of that program. Um, normally, I don't suggest people do those two days right in a row. But if you're someone, let's say, who really wants to, wants to work on legs, upper body's not so important, you could put those, but you know that the rest that you get, that extra two hours of sleep, that extra sleep cycle you know, in the morning or what have you, um, really makes a difference and you're a different animal on Saturday at one o'clock at the gym you really like to go to as opposed to, you know, going to planet fitness, you know, where you're not supposed to make any noise and you're training after work where you're pissed off at your, your boss or what have you, all those things can be written down and you can get some, some insight as to where you are. Um, and then, and then just simply the black and white numbers in the, in the logbook will kind of tell you, you know, it's like a, you're starting to backslide. None of your work, none of your exercises are progressing. Then it's yeah. time to, which is, know, to and that's, cruise. and that's the, when I was saying at the beginning, like experience, like you have to figure it out for yourself. For me, that's, that's yeah. how I figured it out. That's how I backed down was, you know, I, because I, I was focusing so much on progressing uh, then I, I, if, when I wasn't progressing anymore and I, I knew, I just knew in my heart is like, I, I can't, I couldn't lift what I wanted to lift today, but had I taken another day off, I know I could have, it answered right. itself for me, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, you just have to like, you know, fall down eight times, fall down seven times, stand up eight kind of thing. <laughs> right. Like learn from your mistakes. Um, Doug, uh, Doug adds in a question to that. He says, is HRV a valuable metric to incorporate into making this decision? I, I think it can be. Um, there's all sorts of things. I, I think the thing, and I haven't looked at the HRV literature in a little while. Um, the thing that seems that came out at me, stepped out at me when I looked at it the last time is to look for a, a change personally. There's huge variability in HRV. So some people say like, if your HRV, you know, dips below this, you know, that's not good. Well, some people just have a low HRV. Mine's, mine could be really, really low. Um, you know, I think there's also some variability in how, what you're using to measure it. I get different numbers on my phone versus I, I got my oral uh, ring on now just so I can confirm that how poorly I sleep sometimes. <laughs> like, Yep, I had one pretty bad. REM. Yeah, it's pretty pretty <laughs> shitty. I like makes sense. I feel like I do. I take a nap today, you know. Um, so yeah, I I think so. But the main thing is to see where it's going and to know compare yourself against yourself with HRV um, and see how that correlates with or seems to be associated with. You know, you're probably not going to do correlations, or you could run that through a, a spreadsheet if you wanted to and get an actual correlation. Yeah. Um, with your other measures. And see how it fits together. So you're you're painting the big picture, you know. I wouldn't I wouldn't like say, oh, I feel really good, but my HRV is like 46, and normally it's 56. Yeah. Now, if low 50, that's 50 is my cutoff. I'm not going to the gym. That's that's not how I would use it in any way, shape, or form. You know what I've but noticed? Oh, I'm sorry. I was just gonna say I I noticed that um, with the whole post COVID thing. I'll have days that are really good and then days that are not really good. And one way I can predict that is uh, I'll, I'll, if I do fasted cardio uh, or even not really even fasted cardio, just a, a cardio session before my training session and I'll mm -hmm. get on the treadmill and I'll see how much work it takes for me to get my heart rate up. Sometimes I'm walking, you know, three miles an hour with a very low incline and I'm already up at 120, 125. And other times mm -hmm. I've got that incline cranked. I'm going at 3.5 miles an hour, almost pushing four, and I'm not even close to 115 yet. And I can see, okay, today's a day where it, you know, my body's having to work a lot harder, you know, to 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 function normally. This is a day where I'm probably not going to be able to push as much. So, so you find when you're feeling worse that your heart rate's lower, it doesn't get up. Doesn't it, it, I, I feel like my my cardio strength or is better, you know, like uh -huh. like my heart rate stays calmer. So when I go to okay. do, yeah, exactly. Gotcha. So yeah, in my my heart rate stays calmer. I can handle more performance on the treadmill. I'm not breathing as heavy, uh, you know, and and I'm doing a more output, and my heart rate isn't getting cranked up as high versus. There's other times where it's like, oh, my God, I'm not even walking three miles an hour on a small incline and I'm already at mm -hmm. 120, you know? Right. Yeah. That Well, elevated rested heart heart rate is, you know, like a, one of the big signs of overtraining. Yes. You know, yeah. which is, which is there you know, you go. essentially, you know, accumulation of stress. So, yeah, you've got you've got a baseline resting heart rate that's probably elevated, too. I bet you're you right. Those. Yeah. And then so there's just, a tool, you know, right? At, yeah. Yeah. If you get that far. Yeah, then you're then you're definitely hurting, you know. 
Another one, like a simple one related to that is use of stems. Like if you feel like, oh shit, like I don't think I can even, hopefully I can just get to the kitchen so I can, you know, make my <laughs> coffee. You know? <laughs> and you have to use coffee to keep rolling, then that's something too. Yeah. You know, so There's- yeah, I've got a list in the Be Your Own Bodybuilding. There's a bunch, bunch of things you can do, but um, it's just sort of like picking your measurements and sticking with them for you as an individual. And so then, you know, like that's like, that's a perfect thing. Like you get on the cardio, you do like, you know, you do that set, uh, speed and incline. And if your heart rate is jacked up, you're like, okay, you know, just going to keep this in mind. Um, and adjust accordingly. So true nutrition has supported our programming now for a number of years. And I'm super grateful for it because they believe in us and I believe in them. I'm sure you guys have heard of Dante Trudell. We talk about him on the shows. Uh, he had a vision of offering high quality third-party tested supplements at a fair price. They have a ton of different protein powders, just about every type you could think of. Literally thousands of flavor combinations. Hit me up if you're interested in suggestions. They offer health supplements. I use their collagen and their fish oil. And of course, they offer performance supplements. You can get bulk EAA powder or beta alanine. You can also get finished products like the Mountain Dog Perry MD Intra Workout. If you shop with True Nutrition and you use our code THINK, you'll get some additional savings, you'll get high quality supplements, and you will support our programming. You can also help to support the shows through Patreon. I appreciate everybody who's made a contribution. You guys are helping to keep me pumping these podcasts out. I have links to everything in the description. Check them out. Let me know what you think, and let's get back to the program. We got a couple more here. All of a sudden, we got a few popping in. Uh, okay. So, and then we have our one from Laser uh, as well. So we got three. We could maybe try to knock through here quickly. I'm just going to grab the one that came up f- latest, and that was from a uh, former client of mine, Lynn Buscemi. You know, when I worked with Lynn, she was in the bikini division, and she got absolutely peeled, like absolutely like diced. And then she added some more muscle, and she moved on to figure, and she just competed in uh, women's physique this year. Uh, she was out there. I think she also did the show Andrea did that uh, women's extravaganza in Arizona. She looked really good, mm-hmm. but she just did mention. She said, "I can never get my heart rate up uh, during a leg workout. Is that bad?" I mean, I feel like she's probably very conditioned, Scott. She's she just competed. She's probably doing a lot of cardio. You know, I'd have to think right. that her cardio strength is real strong. Is that what you would mm-hmm. think? Yeah, obviously, yeah. That. Part of it, Lynn, that was a minute ago. It looks like at least from mine. How how high is high? Um, that's part of it. Oh yeah. Uh, let me see if I can. How old? How old roughly is? I was going to open a profile. How old is she roughly? She's got to be. She's in her early forties. I'll say. Okay, so the standard here's the standard maximal heart rate is two twenty minus your age. Okay. So her her predicted would be you know one seventy five one eighty maybe, and that's the By very that, top end. That w- that would be the predicted number, but the standard deviation for that prediction is about ten beats per minute. So if you think of a bell curve, you're gonna have to go out you know two or three standard deviations to get ninety plus percentage of people. Just kind of give rough ballparking it here. So people can be you know much higher than that or much lower than that. And actually, there's 
there's a bunch of different heart rate heart rate prediction equations that put people at all sorts of different places and they've made measurements for instance of firefighters uh, with heart rate monitors on them standing on top of burning buildings who have heart rates like guys that are in their 30s or 40s who have heart rates that are 230 you know really so yeah well i mean that's a life threatening situation you're on a burning building you know yeah. in in full you know full outfit um, with a self controlled uh, self contained breathing apparatus and the whole thing, your life's in danger. Yeah, you're you're going to be. And they've just you know done like if you ever done seen the combat challenge. That's just brutal. Yeah, it's a it's it's a yeah it's a it's a firefighting simulation test that they do. They used to do the championships on ESPN. I've done it actually. I used that for my master's thesis as an exercise test. Yeah. Would what you do it on the do. Would you do it on the podcast today? I don't have the, the suit, so no. And I don't have if the you had the suit, if you had the suit, would yeah. you, though? Oh, I'm glad to know that. I'm glad to know you yeah. would commit to that for the you show You have to today. have a tower and a dummy and an axe. Like, there's a, you know, it's a, a right. series of, yeah, like, you, you carry a hose up, a, like, a three- or four-story tower. You yes. drop the hose. Then you have to pull another hose up from the ground. You run it back down. Then you drag a dummy, like, 100 feet All or something right. like that. And then you if have to get enough, break in for century. If we can get yes. enough Patreon subscribers, uh, we will set that up for the following episode. I, I did it, and um, and I I didn't. I was like, I think I did like three 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 and a half minutes, and the, like the world class guys go like like less than two minutes. Okay, and I was literally I was just seeing stars. Like I was just my whole field of Whew. vision was just all fucked up. Yeah, it was That's absolutely crazy. brutal. But um, so so there's there's that forty nine. Okay. So, one thirty. So we could do. Let me just do a little math here. If she, let's say, she say she's fifty. She's, but she's close to my age. So, which we know you're not, Lynn. We're just using a round number here. Right, right. So I leave, leave it up. So let's do. Let's do this. So she's at eighty percent of at one thirty or so. She's at about eighty percent of her predicted max heart rate. Okay. 135, 135 divided by 171, we'll put it in that way. That's that's 79%. So that's so, pretty good for for working yeah. out, right? At cardio, if she let's say if she's at 130, um that is 70 let's say 75% of maximal heart rate, let's say that's what it is. Yeah. That's lactate threshold. Um, in that, that percentage of your VO2 max would be your about where your a lactate threshold would be in an elite endurance athlete. She sounds okay. like she's got really good cardio. If she, or max heart rate's actually a bit higher than that, even if you're around 70% of max heart rate, that's about what you could maintain for exercise stresses lasting longer than about 10 minutes. Okay. So she's kicking ass. She's actually, she's just, she's just kicking butt. All right. Um, that's the long and short of it. Yeah, I bet if she if she went, ask her if she's ever tried like a leg press. Have a trial if she chooses. So chooses. This isn't a prescription because I haven't. I don't have. She hasn't signed a consent form with me. But <laughs> when I do muscle rounds, yeah, um, like like with a leg press or a Smith squat, you can also do them alternating with the, with the, like a Romanian split squat. Okay. And I've had a heart rate monitor on. I've gotten myself up above. This was just like a couple years ago. I used to have a. Um, a Fitbit. I remember that. Uh, yeah, and I got over like two. I got over two hundred on the Fitbit. That's the other thing. There's also measurement error potentially. Sure. 
especially like when you get Apple. that high, right? Like when you when you start pushing it. I'll do them, and I'm pretty good at manual measurement because I've been doing it for years. Like we had to do that for the ACSM health fitness instructor test back in 1993. You know, like while someone's exercising, we used to do them manually. You know, just because a good check to make sure someone's heart rate's not going crazy. So yeah. I'm pretty good at it. You know, I know I'm up in the 180s, 200s. I look at my Apple Watch, and it'll tell me I'm at 42. <laughs> right. It's to- it's awful. It just so it's also measurement. So it could be you know how she's measuring. Or what she's using to measure. Even the polar, I have a polar. Yeah, it, it doesn't work for me. Really? Yeah. Well, that's it because you're a freak it, of nature, Scott. I, I, lats maybe push it down out of place or something. Oh, but I've like literally yeah. tried to hold it there and get a measurement, and it never it doesn't work. So, huh. yeah, all right. it's all fucked up. I'll jump to our other couple questions before we wrap here. This is from Tanya Miller. She says, uh, Scott, how do you feel at this point uh, about the MPS refractory period and its interaction with ample protein feedings being too close together? I understand the MPS spike lasts uh, some amount of time, but does that detract from another spike soon after or might it just last longer? What, what, what does this question even mean, first of all? What the fuck? What's um, going on here? So, so she's talking about um, there's a refractory effect. It's called the muscle full effect in some of the literature, um, whereby you can when you when you have a feeding or you present to muscle cells or present to muscle um, amino acids that turn on muscle protein synthesis, and eventually that protein synthetic effect will fade. And even if you present the muscle, say, two hours after an initial present, a bolus of amino acids, you present the muscle once again with those essential amino acids, which would normally turn this on, or a full complement of amino acids, it doesn't want to go. It's a refractory effect. So people talk about, like, uh, in, in the erectile dysfunction world, you know, or like with men, this is like the first time I remember like hearing the word, which was typically used before. There's a re- refractory effect. A guy um, gets roused, he has an orgasm, and then there's a refractory period where he can't go again. Yeah. So that's that's what refractory means. It's like once capable, there has to be some rest break in between. In this case, the muscle protein synthesis can't be turned on again for some period of time. And that comes from basically experiments, you know, with isolated muscle uh, and actually, uh, Gabe Wilson has a paper where he looked into this. And if you feed carbohydrate, it seems like feeding, feeding carbohydrate does actually, uh, undo that refractory effect. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So part of it, it seems to point to the idea that it's, um, there's something going on with the energy status of the cell, which makes sense. If you're thinking about, um, what a cell would require, uh, in order to turn on protein synthesis, there's a huge energetic requirement that there has to be fuel available. So if you've got a muscle that's, you know, bathed in an artificial medium where you're controlling the proteins that are coming to it and you're basically not providing any fuel for it, it's got nothing going on in terms of uh, glycolytic intermediates or energy status sensing that suggests, like, that it has the go-ahead to turn on protein synthesis because there's no energy to do it. It's sort of like... It's kind of like, um, uh, so you, you've got workers in place. You start this experiment out. You've got workers in place. You provide the bricks to build the house, to 
turn on the protein synthesis. So they get, they get to work. And then at some point in time, they stop working. Uh, and then, um, so they leave the energy status of the cell, you know, is used up some energy and then you don't provide any workers. There's no, there's no energy, no workers to use the next load of bricks that come by. So the next truck comes by, drops off the bricks and there's no, there's no workers there to do anything with them. So like, well, how come the protein synthesis didn't turn on? It's because there's no energy. But if you replenish the energy by feeding carbohydrate, glucose, mm. then you will undo this refractory effect. The, the, the bricks not being used, the amino acids not being used to turn on protein synthesis is remedied by providing carbohydrate. So, um, you know, maybe there could be an effect of, uh, and here's, here's the thing too, like if you've got an intact system, Let's say you've got someone who's eating protein and they're only eating, you know, protein feedings like every three hours or two hours, let's say, and you, that you're thinking about that second protein feeding being a problem. Um, one of the things that happens with amino acid feedings, too, is gluconeogenesis as well as insulin. So this is where a whole human differs from isolated skeletal muscle. In that isolated skeletal muscle where you bring in the amino acids two hours later and you say, oh, there's this refractory effect. It's not doing anything with it. That's in skeletal muscle that doesn't have the other organs and the rest of the body around it. Hmm. Or you've got a situation where you're controlling glycemia and you've got an, uh, an insulinemic clamp where you're controlling insulin. So you're keeping all those things the same. Okay. Take a whole person, give them another 50 grams of whey protein two hours later. They're going to get an insulin spike, and they're going to get uh, uh, gluconeogenesis coming about from that protein that comes in. So okay. they're going to have glucose available, and they're going to have insulin, which is going to change energy state. And, and um, insulin can't actually turn on protein synthesis as long as there's increased blood flow to the area. And you can look. There's a Japanese group, Vegeta, I think is the first name that did that, has demonstrated that. The people just seem to forget that that study. It was pretty pretty well controlled and pretty well done. So different situation in vivo, in vivo, the whole person versus in vitro or in situ um, sort of artificial situations where they're looking at isolated muscle. Where they're controlling what's going to the, the muscle organ itself. Okay. So not something to worry about. You know, it's not like, you know, guys that are like, you're not seeing anyone who's like, I eat protein every two hours and I just don't grow. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I take it. I mean, here's the thing is like if you try to like look at the whole big picture, let's say someone let's say that that is refractory effect. You can just you would just maintain the refractory effect if you kept on trying to feed protein. Like it's like if you give every protein every two hours, you, you basically, you know, keep keep dampening the protein synthesis effect. And you did that all day long. Then you would have only got protein synthesis from that first feeding. And then all those two-hour feedings where you put in 25 grams of protein, let's say, over the course of the day, and you tallied up 250 grams of protein during a, a – like, you wouldn't get anything from that. You would just be like – you'd constantly be, you know, dampening down with this refractory effect. The protein synthesis would come about from that. Okay. It would mean you wouldn't get any growth. You, you literally, you would, you would, the atrophy would be tremendous. It'd be the same if it were true and something that panned out over the course of the day, day in and day out, week in week out. Then twenty-five grams of protein once a day would be the same as twenty-five grams of day in the morning, and then twenty-five gram doses the rest of the time because all those would be inhibiting protein synthesis constantly throughout the day, day in and day out. And you would be in a negative nitrogen, a negative protein balance, and you would just wither away as if you were 
only getting 25 grams of protein. Yeah. Which doesn't happen, you know, and lots of guys, you know, eat on a regular basis, which would hypothetically be um, inducing some of this refractory effect. And it's not, it's not something. In fact, what you would see, and more I think about it, you would see um, uh, a dose response of protein um, versus gro- muscle growth, let's say. And you can look at the CIRMAC review article and the Alan, Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld have one looking at um, all the kind of protein timing studies. And this is like one source of evidence looking at, you know, where 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of protein per day kind of gives you a, um, you know, a, a best, uh, a best growth effect when combined with resistance training. That's sort of where the, where the protein needs seem to be um, optimized or sort of maxed out. You would see an effect where, you know, protein is suboptimal at like the RDA of 0.8 grams per kilogram per day. And like, then you get to like 1.2 grams per kilogram per day, you get better growth. And then once you get to like 1.6 to 2.2, that sort of optimal range, that's good. And then if you started taking in more, if you went to 2.5 or went to like 4.0 or 3.6, which is what Alan Aragon or uh, sorry, or Alan and to- Jose Antonio, another good guy, um, has done, you would see then a law of, of diminishing returns, actually a negative effect because all that protein would be impairing protein synthesis through this yeah. refractory effect. And so that you'd eat that so much protein that you would just put the clamp down on your, on your protein synthesis <laughs> and you would start losing size yeah. with all that extra protein. The more and protein it, you eat, the smaller you get. We don't hear that. That's, that's basically <laughs> what would happen. And you may be pissing away some of your protein. You don't get any better gains according to Jose's uh, evidence. Um, but you also don't put on body fat too. There's this thermogenic effect of protein. So it, really doesn't get get um, disposed of and stored as it's just so energetically expensive to do that. Um, and the thermic effect is there as well. They just don't get extra body fat from that. Yeah. But if this refractory effect were something that really panned out in, in the whole body over the course of time, those in those studies, you would have – I don't think this is even addressed in there. Um, it would be kind of silly to, but you, and the, you would see that those guys actually started losing size. In the high protein, yeah. they would actually have started going backwards um, because they're taking in so much protein, it would constantly be in their system. Four grams per kilogram is a lot. That's, you know, that's 100 pounds for, for a heavyweight, you know, 220 pound guy. That's 400 grams of protein per day. Yeah, that um, would which be a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty, it's a pretty size. That's like, you know, uh, eight 50 gram protein meals per day. Yeah. Yeah, they, those guys were really tired of eating protein, from what I understand, after after those experiment. I bet. So, so anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it's something, you know, that I don't think really, uh, it really doesn't play for those various reasons. It's not really something to worry about. All right. I've got one more for you. This is from laser and I'm going to have you read it because I don't know what that term is, uh, that he's seeing his chiropractor for. Okay. Uh, I think he asked me about, about this before and I responded because I have, um, moralgia parasthetica. So he started seeing a chiropractor. Okay. Yeah, he started seeing a chiropractor for moralgia parasthetica, and and what that is is um, an injury to the femoral cutaneous nerve. This is the thing that's been going on with my left leg for quite a while now. Oh, okay. Um, for me, for me, well, I'll, I'll talk about this afterwards. But um, so what that causes causes in, in that nerve, which innervates the lateral thigh, um, just from about your hip to about the knee, at least you look at sort of the, 
um, the dermatomes or the innervation diagrams you'll, you'll find online. I tend to feel things a little below my knee too, but so there's, there's genetic variation and all that. Um, so the, the paresthesia could be numbness. I've had numbness there. Um, you Googling it now? No, no, no. Little picture. Oh, um, uh, or pain or both, uh, or tingling. So a paresthetic, a, you know, an, an abnormal sensation of some sort. So he started seeing his chiro for neuralgia paresthetica, but now learning from people who have it, this is something that can last decades. They may never go away. Am I wasting my time and money seeking treatment? And what advice do you have with proceeding with my barbell training? So I'm working on this myself. Um, uh, so my thought, I, mine's getting better slowly. And, and I've had it on both legs. And I know the cause, I'm pretty certain the cause of mine. For me, it was squatting, wearing a belt in particular, and my belt coming down and hitting that nerve, like You're squatting down. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Because I know that feeling. Um, yeah, yeah, right. And and squatting, you know, with a, a you know a lot of food in my stomach, so a little bit of a food baby in the past. Yeah. And yeah. just going deep, and you know, get into a squat mindset. You know, you don't feel what's going on. I had no idea it was happening there. Yeah. So even me, if it hurts, even if it pinches, you're like, but it's not my lower back. My knees aren't yeah. blowing out. So I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I mean, yeah. every once in a while, like you get a little pinch in the skin or like, yeah. this is probably happened to you. Like there have been times when I take my belt off and like, there's like, you know, a, a black mark yes. there where the skin got caught. And it's like that Oops. had to have hurt under any normal circumstances. Yeah. But you've got so much neural drive going to it, you know, gait theory and, and pain modification, pain sensory modification sort of explains this idea that like you've got like one gate through that through which the efferent and the afferent information should come. And if you've got so much huh. efferent information going down that the afferent information, the pain coming back can't make its way through. So it's a, it's a one way. It's a gate. You can't Holy like shit. It, it kind of gets overloaded. I think that's that's my you know very basic understanding of the idea. And that's definitely what happens. Like, kind of become oblivious. Some of it's just you know purely psychological, not even a neurological thing. But yeah. Um, so I never felt it and never figured it out until you know I had to like work around it. And I fixed mine many times, like four times I think, through stretching. Um, there's some mobilization exercise where you tr literally try to mobilize the nerve, and you can your chiropractor hopefully showed you those. You can find those on. Uh, YouTube. Um, and uh, you have to be careful. Like one of the things, um, Natalie Graziano is someone I've talked with about this. Mm. And uh, she wasn't really big on like a bunch of foam rolling necessarily. Um, because sometimes what you can do is if you kind of overstretch that area, you'll, you'll actually, this is her thoughts on the idea. And I, th it makes sense to me too, is that you can actually cause that connective tissue where the nerve is entrapped or damaged or doesn't isn't free to move it's compressed in some way which i think is what happened with me um is that i've got scar tissue there now um due to the inflammation that i was causing many many times to happen yeah. and now the nerve's stuck so you start foam foam rolling that you can actually cause more connective tissue to lay down in that area worsening the entrapment of the nerve yeah so you're actually exacerbating the situation so when I would, what I was doing, what has helped is like doing, like stretching the IT band and getting on a foam roller, but not like trying to like roll the crap out of it, but just very, just laying on the thing to just mm. try to stretch without a whole bunch of irritation to the area. 
Um, so uh, part of the problem with barbell training and um, is that, at least for me, is that the what's and this is this is the tough part. My my, my TFL, my tensor fasciolata, is is what's largely involved here, um, and so that one of the actions there is is hip flexion, and part of what you have to kind of do in order to stabilize your pelvic girdle when you're squatting to keep at least a neutral or your a normal lumbar curvature is have some torque that pulls you. Um, that, that, that stabilizes the pelvis from the front, there'll be a hip flexion kind of torque. Um, so you don't bow your low back the wrong way. So when you go down in a squat, and if you're trying to keep a really tight low back, an arch low back, you have to have a pull from the front, which is what the tensor fasciolata does, which, is, which basically tightens up all that musculature where the nerve <laughs> is having problems. So um, that's, I end up having a problem when I have to activate that, that musculature. And squatting tends to make, do a to really bother me in that regard. Okay. Um, so, like one of the things that I've been doing to train the posterior chain as of late is more stiff legged deadlifts. And the tough part about it is, is I can't activate that musculature. If I do, I tend to irritate the area. Instead, I'd rather use the rectus femoris and the iliacus and the psoas. And um, I've kind of my nervous system hasn't ever been able to figure out how to do that. Hmm. So what I end up doing, and this is where, you know, and I hope I feel bad because I think I'd make Derek feel bad when I talk about this because I very vil- willingly and voluntarily did this <laughs> when we trained together this year. I was making this worse, and I was doing John's program that he'd written out, John Meadows program he'd written out for Derek, right. knowing the volume was too much in general for me, right. but just knowing I had an opportunity to go to town and train really hard and have fun. And knowing the exercises would bother me. So split squat stuff, stuff where you have to do a lot of um, uh, hip stabilization and a lot of activation of the hip flexors and a lot of activation of the muscle there where that nerve passes through is stuff I knew would bother it. Yeah. And it did terribly. It was awful. I literally, I'd get, to, I'd get to go with leg, I could actually do leg presses okay, but I would literally have to throw like with my hands, like throw my leg up there because I, I didn't want to activate that the hip flexor to lift, just put my feet up on the leg press, just doing this, yeah. the hip flexion involved with the legs would, was tremendous pain. It was awful. Okay. So one of the things, you know, that you, he would have to do, at least my thought on it is avoid the stuff that causes pain, which is probably going to be barbell squats. Um, and try to figure out ways to train probably with machines that are guiding the arc in the, in the plane of motion so that he can get away with using a, a you know a developed mind muscle connection to train the quads and the hamstrings and the glutes without having that stabilize with the hip flexors. That would which, make sense. Yeah, so you have to kind of like you know get fancy with the machines and step away from the barbell free weight training where you have to have stabilization, otherwise you fall over or your hips go wonky and you you know suffer a problem with your low back because you let your back roll or something. Yeah. So, but it can be fixed. I know this because because uh, I've done it myself. I fixed myself. I just buried myself so bad that I've got, you know, I got to crawl out of the hole that I created for myself. But mine's getting better. I can sleep on my side now. I couldn't do that for like five six months. Um, would would a chiropractor be of benefit in this situation? In your opinion, you know, it's funny. Um, Chris Barricat, who you know, 
Yeah. Um, here in town, he actually competed. I don't know how he did. I haven't heard you. He competed yesterday, but okay. Uh, cool physique. Um, I really like his look. Yeah, yeah. He was very happy with what he. Um, we met about a week before, week ago, okay. like last weekend, and um, he's doing peak week stuff, and there's a whole other podcast to cover on that idea. But um, he has a buddy who's a chiropractor who he was real is really sharp, and and he mentioned me to him. Okay. Uh, Chris mentioned me to the chiropractor and said you should go see him. So I'm going to go see what this guy has to say. Um, I had it had it looked had it treated long ago before I was sort of sure it was going on. Um, a massage therapist did what most people who try to treat me do is they see they see you know this guy with thickly muscled guy and they're like I got to go in there and just pound through the mountain you know right and it just like, destroy his muscle to get a therapeutic effect which has never worked, not once in not 20 years. Um, and that's, that's what um, this person did. And he put, actually he used uh, e-stem on top of a whole bunch of deep tissue and put me just in an absolute world of hurt. It was one of the most, it's a very, very, very painful experience. Okay. And I was for a long while. No kidding. That. It was really bad. Yeah. Because he just irritated the area. He was hoping yeah. to he was hoping to loosen it up and provide some room for things to stretch, but that didn't work for me. So that was my experience. That may work for someone else, but I just tossed that out as a, uh, you know, if he has gone through the same thing. Um, but most of those people who who haven't like their entire lives, and they're not willing to do what he's willing to do to get rid of it. I'm sure you know, yeah. given that he trains, those are people who sit a lot and they just end up with it as a result of sedentary, you know, extensive sedentary living. Um, one thing that I have found too, and I need to be more regular with this is, um, like literally just like sort of sitting, getting down and kneeling on my knees hmm. and sitting up. I, I did this as part of my stretching regime with the, with the hips forward. It seemed to like sort of reset some of my, um, my stretch reflexes to some degree. And I had a period like a couple months ago after doing that, you know, for a couple of weeks where I went on a walk and I was in pain, was pain free for like probably a quarter, a third of a mile. I was walking totally normally. It was like, it's like a dream come true. I'm no like, kidding. I'm going to go on a longer walk. I'm going to go on a longer walk, you know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, I did. And then I got worse. <laughs> so oh. I got, I walked so far with the dogs that I had so far to walk back that I was limping by the time I got home. So, there's another, uh, you know, beware of trying to overdo it. If you do get a therapeutic effect, cause you could make it worse, which is what I did. Hey, check this so, out. You just by messaged the way. me something. I, well, yeah. I messaged it to you so I could open it up myself. Uh, there Chris Bearcat, grateful to be on, uh, back on stage and realize the growth that has been produced. All the glory goes to God on my first place victory in a very competitive oh. open light heavyweight bodybuilding class of seven. He said he didn't earn his WNBF pro card tonight as he fell short in the overall uh, to an excellent competitor. Da da da. Uh, however, he is not upset in the slightest. So yeah, congrats to him. You look fantastic, huh? Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. So. Well, this will be very, very cool. So, yeah, I can talk about some of this. So we were um, – we had the Peak Week paper that came out, 
Yeah. And we're starting wanting to do some follow-up stuff. And we wanted to basically sort of document that the things are happening with muscle glycogen and water and muscle thickness and the filling out, like to quantify some of the known visual effects that you get, you know, when you're flat to when you're full. Yeah. We have a bunch of ideas of doing that. And one of the things that I was sort of concerned about, which seems like it's actually the case. Yeah. Oh, nice. Is, um, uh, that something's going on with the methodology um, uh, to measure intracellular and extracellular water. Okay. Bioelectric spectro- yeah. So it's a long story, but it doesn't make any sense. The data doesn't make any sense. Don't make any sense because my guess is that because they, they, all the algorithms and the equations that are making use of those measurements to estimate what's going on terms of those fluid compartments were based on normal people not yeah. people that look like chris that yeah. were you know four percent body fat you know her lean bodybuilders so it's so funny like so that so there's no way to really at least that we're, we've come up with yet you know other than like doing a, a dexa might be something we can look into maybe an mri something crazy like that but ultrasound you know potentially but we were hoping to quantify some things and um so that was what he was doing. But along the way, like we're trying to make the measurements of what we uh, using the, the methodology in our peak week paper. Yeah. So Chris did the peak week paper strategy, which is the one that, you know, that I've been doing for a couple of decades now and it worked tremendously well. So that's cool. That was really cool to see. Yeah. Cause he ran that through and it, it just, he nailed it. He said, so, and I hadn't seen the pictures cause I just haven't gotten to my social media yet. So, but, uh, that's awesome. It makes me very happy to see that. Congrats, Chris. All right. Let's wrap this thing up. Uh, yep. If we hadn't mentioned it before, uh, you can you can get the Fortitude Training Guide for literally pennies per month. No, I don't know what it would break down to. But $20, yeah. that's like uh, yeah. less than $2. You could own it for the cost of less than a cup of coffee per month for an entire year. Uh, <laughs> but it's a lifetime ownership. Yeah. Yes, yes. You don't right. have to turn it back in. Go to fortitudetraining.net. Uh, and, of course, check out byobbcoach.com to check out Scott's book there. And you can get the hardcover uh, Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach at Amazon. And check out our awesome sponsor, True Nutrition. You could use our code THINK for some additional savings there. Scott, as always, it has been a pleasure. And this is a nice, fun, like laid-back episode getting to yeah, like just cool. kind of talk about a bunch of stuff. So. Yes, it's the, just just so we don't get anyone up in arms with you know the title issues. Just say bunch of stuff. We could just bunch call of it stuff, bunch of stuff. Bunch of stuff about stuff. Yeah, there All you right. go. See you guys. Stuffs. 